All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Bills Beat Podcast. However you are joining us, whether it be on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, my name is Joe Biscaglia. Matthew Fairburn is my co-host, and, of course, we are into the offseason, yes, but we are getting very close to actual football stuff. And we saw Rookie Minicamp last week on Friday. Next week, on Tuesday, we'll get our first glimpse of the entire roster, or at least those that choose to show up, seeing as how it's still voluntary. But it's the first of three OTA sessions we'll be able to see over the next three weeks. So, with that, I thought it might be a good time to open it up. Because, you know, you all listen to us ramble on about whatever the hell we want to talk about. So, hey, why why not... uh, Open it up to the floor to see what uh, what you all want to talk about. How do you feel about that? We good? I dig it. All right. Well, we um, tried to solicit some uh, questions. Um, and I think the first place we're going to start off is something that uh, was asked quite a bit by a few of you guys. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it's hilarious because the Twitter handle I just stumbled upon... First, that asked this question is an all timer. Um, at Mr. Meaty Man. Mm. Yeah, good one. Real good one. Interesting. Uh, he, <laughs> he says, uh, Would the Bills go after Kyle Rudolph, the tight end from Minnesota? And if so, who gets the boot? Um, I don't know about you, but I don't know that uh, I'm necessarily in on the idea of uh, Kyle Rudolph, at least at, at this stage with all that they've done already. I mean, it, it just, it, it almost, like, I wouldn't rule it out completely, but it almost just doesn't make sense for them right now. Yeah, they've invested quite a bit of resources in the, the tight end position so far. I mean, started with Tyler Croft, and, you know, they added Lee Smith recently to a a contract that would suggest he won't be cut right. at the end of training camp. Same goes for Tyler Croft's contract. I would say, you know, for the most part, he's safe to make the roster. And then they spent a third-round pick on Dawson Knox. The seventh-round pick on Tommy Sweeney isn't something that makes you say, oh, he's he has to be on the team, uh, or you wasted a pick. It's a seventh-round pick. But you're probably talking about maybe spending another pick to get Kyle Rudolph if he doesn't get released. Right. And or even, swapping picks, but right. just worsening something of yours. Even if it's a fifth, sixth round pick, whatever it may be, or you're giving up something of value potentially to get him. And while I'm not opposed to the idea of throwing even more resources at that position, you know, a fifth or sixth round pick to get a good player is, you know, a cheap price to, pl- to pay. My question would be how you divide up all the reps mm-hmm. after you know everything you've done because you know we can assume that Tyler Croft is going to be involved and the difference between Tyler Croft and Kyle Rudolph I don't think is substantial at this point in Kyle Rudolph's career Lee Smith is probably in line for a role as a, a blocking tight end and you'd like to get Dawson Knox on the field in some capacity uh, at some point I mean you spent a third round pick on him traded up to get him so it's it's just a matter of where Rudolph would fit into the picture now they have so much money and had so many draft picks that if they were to spend some money and then eat a dead cap number because they have to cut the guy who doesn't 
you know, pan out. That may not be the worst strategy in the world. It's a luxury that they could probably afford right now. But it, if you follow the money trail and their actions this offseason, it seems to me that they're probably done at tight end. They've already completely rebuilt it. I mean, the only person left standing from last year is Jason Kroom. He was the only uh, tight end from last year's roster to even make it to, like, March. The, the rest of them were, were gone. Charles Clay was gone in late February, I believe. Um, Logan Thomas, his, he was restricted. He, his, uh, he was not offered a, a tender to come back to the Bills. And, you know, they just, they just didn't have anything besides Kroom. And now they have Jason Kroom very much on the roster bubble, probably on the outside looking in at this point, if, even if they kept four. Uh, I would I would tend to think that Brandon Bean would choose to invest in a draft pick as opposed to just a guy that that they brought in out of nowhere a couple of years ago. But you know he, Sweeney would have to earn it. But that's even to say that they would keep four tight ends. So if they brought in a Kyle Rudolph, I mean what what does that do to everybody else? Like Lee Smith is still a blocking tight end. What about Tyler Croft? What what happens with him? I mean, he at least showed a baseline ability in that year that he was starting for Cincinnati that uh, that he could do some things in a starting role, and that's probably the the kind of output that they're looking that they're looking for with that. Of course, Rudolph is more of a do it all type of tight end than say a Croft would be, but is that something you want to put another seven point six two five million on your cap into? I mean, these are, they have the cap space, yes, and he's gone after the 2019 season, but is that really worth it to them to where they are right now? I still have a a little seed of doubt in my mind to say, well, maybe that's something Brandon Bean would do if the price is right. But it just doesn't make sense from a, what would they do with everybody else uh, situation? What gives me pause is the fact that Kyle Rudolph didn't all of a sudden become available. It's been a couple weeks in the making, mm -hmm. you know, where he's been sort of rumored to be on the block, potentially available, especially after they drafted Irv Smith. And within those couple of weeks, the Bills have now signed Lee Smith. Mm -hmm. So if Kyle Rudolph were available at the right price and Brandon Bean thought that it would be a fit, would he have gone out and given Lee Smith guaranteed money, uh, a front-loaded deal? Now, I know Lee Smith also kind of you know, became available, but to me, you would have already looked into Kyle Rudolph. Now, again, if they want to really overload the competition, kind of like they did on the offensive line, and be okay with eating some dead cap numbers, maybe you do it. But to And what makes me say that is that I think Kyle Rudolph is a good player and would be potentially an asset but yeah, you would just have an overcrowded room where you have some younger players that you're trying to develop and you have a proven guy at least as a blocker in lee smith uh and then a younger rising guy that you invested in in free agency in tyler croft so it would sort of stunt the development of some of the the players that you've invested in mm-hmm. uh, maybe it would be a good thing to have a guy like like rudolph around but uh again i, I think if you look at what, you know, when he became available and what they've done since, it stands to reason that, you know, if they wanted him, they, they could have made a run at him. Yeah, 
they, they totally could have. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, why don't they just cut Tyler Croft then? I mean, then you're basically just throwing away $4.2 million on, on this year's cap um, in addition to all of the guaranteed money that he gets. So he he was guaranteed it's you so basically you 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 would just take 6.3 million and throw it out the out the window it's just not something yeah. it, it's not something that they can't do because right. they do have money it's just not something that is logical right to be throwing around that kind of money and and then just burning it a few months later is yep. not and again how much of a difference is there between Tyler Croft and Kyle Rudolph at this point? The, in terms of what they're three going, years ago, there was a legitimate difference. Absolutely, now, Kyle Rudolph was no. at one time one of the most productive tight ends in football, and you know one of the most well-rounded tight ends. He still is, um, but at his age, and you know, you wonder about injuries later in his career. So, you know, is the difference enough? to light that money on fire and give up another resource. Is there still a difference? Yes. I, I think Kyle Rudolph is better, mm-hmm. but is there enough of a difference to, you know, justify what you would do to, to make it happen? Probably not. And I think that's where, you know, in terms of just the efficiency of using your resources, I just don't know if it makes a, a great deal of sense. Yeah. Same here. We're on the same page about this. If, like I said, if Kyle Rudolph were to be added, it wouldn't surprise me knowing Brandon Bean, but it would just it wouldn't make the most prudent business sense. And that's one thing that Brandon Bean has always kind of done. He's he's never really just thrown around money or just uh, been reckless in in that side of it. I mean, he's a big time trader and he's aggressive in in that regard, moving up and uh, to secure a young player. But in terms of just throwing around money originally and then three months later saying well actually there's somebody better out there so we're gonna cut this guy or uh, i just i can't see that uh the only the only way is if they were to keep four tight ends right now but then you're saying goodbye to one of tommy sweeney or jason groom which could be a developmental guy for a one year a one-year rental in kyle rudolph and how motivated would rudolph want to be would be to come to buffalo knowing where they are in their rebuild and it, it just doesn't it just doesn't seem to add up he doesn't want to leave minnesota he doesn't want to take a pay cut is what he went on the record as saying and <laughs> if you do go to four tight ends cutting tommy sweeney and jason Kroom, not a big deal no burying dawson knox for you know the sake of it probably not yeah. what you want to be doing yeah, you and want to get him on the field at least a little bit you're either burying Dawson Knox or you're burying Tyler Croft who you spent a bunch of money on and I mean how much money do you want to invest in the tight end position in one year right you know that would be what how big of a combined cap hit would you have on Lee Smith Whew. Tyler Croft and Kyle Rudolph you'd be pushing 20 million wouldn't you uh let's see it's about a little under eight for Rudolph um assuming it's the average valuation because we haven't seen Smith's contract it would be another three for Lee Smith so that's 11 or a little under 11 and then um the cap number this year is a little under five for him so that's 16 and then you chuck in Dawson Knox's contract so yeah you're just under 20 mil this year if you were to do that and that just seems like a little bit much for the position all right so we're in agreement there next question which i thought was a really good one from uh at thunder denny who writes in can you guys briefly discuss the similarities and differences between the jets current management situation and the bill situation in 2017 
seemed like the Jets are it seems like the Jets are getting roasted, and I don't remember the Bills receiving a similar backlash. Yes and no. Um, to at Thunder Denny, I think there is a uh, a key difference here in the fact that Doug Whaley was essentially not the GM as soon as Sean McDermott walked in, whereas um, Mr. McCagnan in in Jetsland was the GM and was doing whatever the hell he wanted with all of the trades, free agency, cutting players, um, most notably free agency, I should say, and then uh, with the draft itself and not being, apparently, reportedly, not being able to be decisive enough to make trades in, in the NFL or in the actual draft. And because that Whaley was effectively neutered as a GM as soon as McDermott came in, that's why I think the Jets are taking a lot more heat right now because you can't go and let him spend all that money on Le'Veon Bell and C.J. Mosley. Have you looked at the C.J. Mosley contract? It's it is, a monstrosity. It is, He's a good football player, yes. but at, I mean, at that number, it's, it's a matter of the investments that they made. Um, with a guy that you're, you fired a couple months later. It's kind of, uh, yeah, there are quite a few differences, but the way that McCagnan was spending money in a huge free agency period for them with their young quarterback, um, when he wasn't on the p- same page with everybody else, is a little bit alarming. Yes. I mean, if you haven't looked at the details of the Mosley contract, let me spit them out for you. He's got a cap hit of $13 million this year, but if they wanted to walk away from it, they would have to eat an additional $30 million on their cap before the start of the season. That's a $43 million cap hit. Next year, they would have to tack on an additional $12.5 million onto their cap uh, in addition to a cap hit already of $17.5 million. So a $30 million cap hit to walk away after one year. After two years, a $17.5 million cap hit. And then if they wanted to walk away... Uh, they would only save $5 million, so it would still be a $12.5 million cap hit. So basically, they can't get out of this contract for three years. And at that point, he'll be a 29-year-old linebacker. Is in that defense, in a 3-4 defense, an inside linebacker, is that position really worth it? What the hell was McCagnan doing? Same thing with Le'Veon Bell. Like The report came out that Gase didn't want to... Uh, he didn't want to spend that type of money on any running back, let alone Le'Veon Bell. And McCagnan went out and did it. So, not to say Gase is really just this beacon of uh, foresight in the NFL, but that said, I mean, he had a point with, with running backs in the NFL. And McCagnan was, he was basically operating as if he was trying to save his job. And he might have sunk their long-term cap flexibility by doing what he did this offseason. Yeah, I think to spin it to the Bills, the the main difference, there's a few key differences. Now, I will also preface this by saying that I don't really like the way that the Bills did it either. Same. I think they should have had, and I think we've talked about this before, that ownership should have had the stomach to fire Whaley at the same time that they fired Rex Ryan and you know the fact that Whaley had built the roster and hired you know Rex Ryan 
sort of. Um, <laughs> you know, he should have gone when Rex Ryan went. I also, I, I don't think, and, and it's hard to know 100%, I know Whaley didn't have a tremendous say in Sean McDermott getting hired. Uh, I don't know what the situation was in New York, how much say McCagnan had in Adam Gase. But for the Bill, from the Bills' perspective, the the fact that Whaley wasn't, you know, the driving force behind McDermott, to me, you know, is a key difference because McDermott came in and whether it was right away or a couple weeks in, it became clear that he was going to be running the show because the senior bowl was the last time Whaley spoke on the record. And after that, Whaley never spoke to the media before he was fired, which is un not entirely uncommon. There are GMs who don't speak, but to have Sean McDermott as the, you know, front man for the organization, especially after how we've seen Brandon Bean handle the offseason, tells us that he was Whaley was being, you know, kind of cast aside. So Sean McDermott got to make those moves in free agency. He mostly handled the draft. And again, if they had a GM in place, that's the draft that people are going to point to when this thing does or doesn't work out and say they should have taken Watson or they should have taken Mahomes because they had a chance at either one and they traded the pick. That's why I think they should have had a GM and they should have scouted those quarterbacks with the confidence of having a scouting staff that they trusted. But the other key difference to me here is the timing of it, because the reason you know that Sean McDermott had kind of taken over and they were ready to move on is that it was about 12 hours or so. I was going to say 12 seconds. (laughs) It was about I (laughs) believe it was about 8 a.m. You know, the next morning that they officially fired Doug Whaley and his entire scouting staff. Right. So they didn't get done with the draft, look over the board and say, yeah, this class sucks. Let's fire Doug Whaley. It didn't really work like that. It was, we're going to fire this guy. We're going to wait until after the draft. We'll let him ride out, you know, this pre-draft process as essentially a scout for us. And he can make some phone calls in the draft room and whatever else. And then they fired him. The Jets, it were what, three weeks now removed from yeah. the draft? We're roughly. in OTAs now. And so... You know, you'll see scouting changes and things like that in the weeks following the draft because that's when contracts usually run up and there's a lot of movement in that regard. But there wasn't a lot of conviction with this move. So maybe there was some discord there. I don't know what the the plan is to replace him, but you see that Adam Gaze has been named the interim general manager. That was not the case with... Sean McDermott. They went and hired a general manager pretty quickly. He was he was the acting general manager. He essentially was, but they didn't make you know. It was what hours later that they traded Darren Lee, which again maybe it's not a bad move. Not to speak to the moves themselves, but more so the optics of what they're doing and what Adam Gase is doing. Last week, going on some tirade about how pissed off he was that people think there was you know discord between him and uh mike mccagnan only for less than a week later him to be fired well (laughs) you know sean mcdermott didn't really do that he played nice with doug whaley in the public eye and and for the most part doug whaley got to go out gracefully i think you know and that was part of why i say ownership probably should have had the stomach to just 
fire him when they did Rex, regardless of right. what it would have meant for Whaley. Because, you know, then they went through that pre-draft process and flux. But, I mean, even look at the Chiefs. I would compare the Bills more to the Chiefs, who a couple years ago moved on from John Dorsey right after the draft and replaced him with Brett Veach. You know, it, it's one of those situations where they were going to do it. You kind of make a quiet change. The Panthers did it with Gettleman after the draft. It happens after the draft at times. It's more so how long they waited after the draft and what they did before that and the fact that there's... If there were reports that Sean McDermott really wanted Patrick Mahomes but Doug Whaley traded the pick, then you know, you'd know you be like, oh, okay, well, that's, right. that's a little strange. There are reports that Adam Gase didn't want Le'Veon Bell, which is one of the biggest moves anybody made in the offseason this year. Mm -hmm. And the Jets did it anyways. And now Le'Veon Bell is tweeting stuff out about, well, I'm still going to play hard anyway. You know, Now he's (laughs) going to have to answer questions about the fact that his coach doesn't like him. And he's going to have to wonder when he walks into the building if his coach even does like him. So for all that goodwill that they built up through the offseason, it's gone. Because, I mean, they drafted Quinn and Williams. They got him, even though they probably... Uh, McCagnan was probably asking for too much to move to move uh, into the third spot and want, wanting a king's ransom and floating out trade ideas that, that maybe didn't even come to fruition. Um, but also the free agency period and adding all of this talent around Sam Darnold and a lot of people thinking that they're poised to do something a little bit more than they did last year. And then now it's complete anarchy. Again. Now I will say... You know, when you take a step back, if you felt good about the Jets a week ago, which, I mean, Bills fans are listening to this, so people probably, if you were, the better way to phrase it is if you were afraid of the Jets a week ago, right? you probably still should be, because I don't think a tremendous amount has changed. Mike McCagnan is not a good general manager. Uh, He never really was. And so... Him being out, if anything, means, you know, potentially they'll have somebody better in place. And the one thing that would make you say, well, I, you know, still am not afraid of the Jets is probably that Adam Gase has no proven track record of Mm -hmm. A, personnel decisions, or B, being all that good of a coach. I mean, I think he was decent in Miami, but he's not some coach that gets the benefit of the doubt automatically. But personnel-wise... If what the Jets did made you uncomfortable that you thought they were going to be a contender, those guys don't leave with Mike McCagnin. Is there a little bit of uncertainty and and um, you know dysfunction surrounding the franchise? Yes, but if Sam Darnold is a hit, then they could still be a pretty good team. And True. Adam Gase may come out of this okay because... You know, and if they get a good general manager in place that they feel good about, obviously some of the contracts they have, they're they're kind of, um, you know, they're stuck with for the most part. You know, the the Mosley and the Bell ones, but those are still good players, and they still have a pretty decent roster. And it, a lot of it will come down to Sam Darnold. And if he's good, then I still think long term you don't trust this organization because the ownership is a, quite frankly, seems idiotic uh, at best and you know completely misguided and over their and heads ir- irrational and right. you know any other negative word you can use for ownership but personnel wise if you liked what they did then 
it, those guys are all still there. Yeah, I, I think there's another difference here in that Gase seems to have a little bit of a slimier reputation than, say, a McDermott did. And this is partially because you have more evidence of what Gase did while in Miami. But, I mean, just so many different people out there insinuating that, you know, Gase likes his guys and he's going to get rid of uh, whoever that he doesn't that he doesn't get along with. And that's what he did in Miami. And, and to give him total power right away so that there's no checks and balances there right away. Um, and right as he gets his head coaching job started with the Jets at OTAs, then, you know, part of part of what makes good um, good teams is having that discourse between the front office and the head coach because coaches in front office see things very differently. Um, you know, front office guys want to see young guys out there more. Coaches just want to win, and they want guys that do things the right way, whereas front the front office will, will remind them, Hey, you need to help bring this guy along. Without that check, without those checks and balances in New York, that's why maybe some people are thinking, "Uh oh, this this might not go as harmonious as maybe the offseason predicted it would." I think the other other part of this, and and you just kind of alluded to it, was the similarity is that both the Bills and Jets ownership made a mistake by not doing something sooner. Jets more so than well, maybe not even more so. I mean, the Jets entrusted more power to McCagnan in the offseason than the Bills did with Whaley. But, but still, at least he was a general manager. At least he was a general manager, and and it didn't prevent them from making bigger moves and moves that he was more prepared to make, whereas Whaley wasn't really the GM any longer. And the Bills seemed resigned to the fact that they were going to punt on the quarterback position in that in the 2017 NFL draft because they didn't have their true GM in place. I think they were, I mean, it might seem like a strong word, but I think they were probably scared. I don't know that Sean McDermott had the confidence in himself as a scout of that position to, you know, make that pick. And true. I definitely don't think he trusted Doug Whaley to do it. And, and Doug Whaley's scouting staff. So they were working with essentially incomplete information going into a draft that could have... I mean, think about... If you think about how much different things could have gone, and I know it's kind of a, a moot point and probably more, you know, torture than anything else. Not to say that Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson automatically would have been superstars in Buffalo, but it's more about how that changed the course of the rebuild Mm -hmm. because then you trade away a bunch of assets to collect picks to position yourself in the 2018 draft to get a quarterback this isn't a josh allen versus patrick mahomes debate or anything like that it's more about you would have been ahead of schedule uh, on your rebuild you could have used you know maybe brandon bean comes in and says you know what i still don't want sammy watkins or marcel darius or all these guys and you trade those guys for assets, and then you're just this team loaded with picks in a draft where you don't need a quarterback. You're almost, you know, you almost set the rebuild back by not bringing in your general manager yeah. at the appropriate time. And the other part of it is, I and I think, you know, people probably might not see this quite this way um, now because we're a few years into it, but. The power that Adam Gaze has 
you know, people say, wow, you know, he was fired at the end of last season. Mm -hmm. Not only did he get another head coaching job, now he gets to have personnel control, which, again, he claimed he didn't want it, which speaks to your point of Gase is not the same personality. He's brash. He's Mm -hmm. rubs people the wrong way. McDermott is much more diplomatic and uh, probably seems like he's better at building a culture. But let's be honest, Gase has crazy eyes as well. Yes, he's he seems like a maniac. <laughs> I like him. He's great on conference calls sure, every year. Right. But he's uh, that's not exactly what you want necessarily in a coach. But the Bills also gave unprecedented power to a rookie head coach. True. A guy who was only ever a defensive coordinator and entrusted him with free agency, which he kind of screwed up um, because they could have had comp picks. Um, yes, he made a few good signings in Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer. But Patrick DeMarco. But Patrick DeMarco, Vlad <sighs> Dukas, <sighs> Steven Hauschka, who's a good kicker. But Didn't all these it. signings that they jumped the gun on yeah. cost them compensatory picks, which could have been more assets. Andre Holmes factored Andre into that. Andre Holmes factored into that. And there's one, I think, that we're missing. Yes, um, there is. Who was maybe it? a cornerback. Um, it wasn't EJ Gaines. That's going to bug me. There was someone that we're yeah. missing that maybe yep. you can look up while we're while I'm rambling, but we, you know, when you look back at that, that those were assets that could have been used for the quarterback, or could have just assets that you would like to have that clearly he miscalculated or wasn't even thinking about that. And then obviously there's the draft where you know they could have had one of these stud quarterbacks and and end up having to punt until the next year, so. There are similarities in some respects, but the difference with the Jets situation is the stage of the rebuild that they're in. You kind of let McCagnin, you know, he fell on his face a few times early in his general manager tenure, and he wasn't very good as a general manager on the whole, but it's more about what you let him do. It's the fact that you let Mike McCagnin pick Sam Darnold, trade everything to pick Sam Darnold, and sort of you know, put put a stake in the ground saying, this is my guy and my future rides on this guy. You let him fire Todd Bowles, Bowles, Bowles. Uh, then you let him hire, <laughs> did he hire Adam Gase? Did he did he not hire Adam Gase? Know. Did he fire I don't know. Todd Bowles? Who knows? By the way, the answer is Leonard Johnson. Yes. I th- yeah, he factored in as well. So they had, um, they, made, they made some missteps there mm-hmm. uh, by my calculations. But not you, you weren't having them make, you know, Doug Whaley wasn't making franchise-altering decisions and then getting let go on his way out the door. Not on his own accord. I know he pretends that he was in charge of the, the draft. It kind of reminds me of like when you give somebody, you give a, a young kid a phone that doesn't work and <laughs> tell them that they're making phone calls because I feel like that's all Doug Whaley was doing. That reminded me, end. when they had the photo gallery right after the draft and they had the one picture just of him like on a phone <laughs> and you saw the, 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 the cord go to the bottom of the screen, I'm like... Ten bucks says yeah. that cord isn't attached to anything. <laughs> it's just it's just the way it was. He, I mean, he wasn't doing a whole lot. And yes, they were using they were working off the info that he and his scouts had gathered. But and should they have fired him in January? One hundred percent. Yes, but it wasn't quite as big of a mistake as now. Also, people will argue that you know switching GMs in January is the middle of the scouting season, and that. 
throws everything out of whack. But yes, at, it is. But, but you look know, at the Raiders. They had to kick their scouts out because they didn't know if everybody was on their their side. But the counterpoint to that is if you are hiring a GM, odds are they were doing the scouting throughout the, throughout the year and they had a pretty well, good knowledge. that's the thing. That they're not right. coming into it. Now, you know, Brandon Bean came in at a good time when he could build his, uh, you know, scouting system basically from scratch. He had to rebuild it. They didn't really have much of what they have now, which is they were working in, you know, from 20, 30 years ago, the similar systems in terms of technology and everything else. Would he have had the time to put all that in place? Uh, not quite, but for the most part, yes. I, I think, you know, it would have been hard to get some of his guys in there. So it's never perfect when you make a change like that. But like you said, he was an assistant general manager in Carolina. If he was not watching college football... Then what the hell was he doing? He, he was on the road. Yes. You know, he, he was scouting and right. he was doing these things. And, you know, he would have... Basically, you know, the, the tricky part of it is, oh, Doug Whaley can now take all this information and bring it elsewhere. Well, nobody hi- nobody's hiring Doug Whaley, first of all. Second of all... Also, you could even keep him on staff if you wanted to and bring in bring in your GM and actually have a direction. I think even though they didn't get grant him the ability to make decisions, they essentially enabled him by his presence for the rest of the organization to feel scared to make a big move in in that draft specifically. And if by doing so, if they were to take a quarterback, that probably rules some GM prospects out because a lot of GMs, when they get their first crack at it, they want to be the one to say, all right, this is the quarterback I'm hitching my wagon to. This is the guy that I want above all else. You don't want to be forced into a marriage if you don't truly believe in in the quarterback that, that you're going to be working with, that your job is going to depend upon. So that's why this whole thing, whether or not they would have taken Mahomes I, I'm always fascinated to know what Bean would have done in, in that I'm fascinated in that to know what Doug Whaley would have done. He would have taken Deshaun Watson. I think he would have. No doubt. Uh, and Which is kind of funny. It kind of speaks to the randomness of, you know, evaluating and picking players in the draft. Mm-hmm. Because he kind of got forced into the EJ Manuel pick in an odd way. I mean... Obviously, that was a disaster of a draft, and you know, Buddy Nix really wanted a quarterback, and so Ooh. all of a sudden, Doug Whaley's tied to EJ Manuel. When you know, if that's what happens when you pigeonhole yourself into picking a certain position in a certain draft, but what if Doug Whaley, you know, had they said, you know what, Doug, you've been kind of caught in the middle of a lot of weird power struggles. You didn't have a ton of say when we hired Rex. We should have listened to you. Go hire your guy. He hires Anthony Lynn, and they go and draft Deshaun Watson. But it's They're, partially you, you know his I mean? own fault. Well, he's he was also not was a good general manager. To it. Yes. He was because he got himself tied up yes, in, these, exactly. in, the, in the politics. He was of it always all. whispering in the owner's ear when, when the coach was on the field. That's what happened. He was he was more worried about protecting his own ass yes. than he was about building a roster. He wasn't organized nearly to the extent that Brandon Bean is. But the point being, you know, he was a decent scout for very many years and probably still can evaluate talent. And would the Bills be in a terrible situation if they, if Whaley had kept, because the, 
the rumor at the time was that they were just going to keep Anthony Lynn, mm-hmm. keep Doug Whaley, and move on. Mm-hmm. And they would have been ready to move on from EJ Manuel. I don't think Whaley was ever in love with Tyrod Taylor anyways. Maybe they go out and they get Deshaun. If you have Deshaun Watson and Anthony Lynn, you probably feel pretty good. It's just, it's funny how the yes. the whole, you know, the domino effect or the butterfly effect can kind of change the course of history. I still think they're in a pretty good spot, um, but, you know, the decision, the timing on these decisions is important, which is why ownership is very important in pro sports and experienced owners who you know, know how to navigate these waters and act with conviction are, are valuable. And we had this ownership conversation at some point is, mm-hmm. you know, at some point the owner has to bear some responsibility because, you know, the head coach is hired by the GM and the GM is hired by the, you know, by the owner. And so all the way down, each person, each key person in the organization is essentially tied to the the owner and most of these guys don't really know what they're doing in a lot of cases because they don't have football background and it's not to say that the pagoulas are totally lost i think they're starting to figure it out a little bit but the going back to what started this conversation the situation in new york the one thing that is clear is that ownership has no idea what it's doing three things one we have spent a lot of time on this question. So great question uh, from Thunder Denny. Two, uh, I feel like this discussion about Whaley's demise and his last few months has been a long time coming on this podcast because we've always kind of like, yeah, but we don't want to go back to it. This was, this was a good one. This was a good time to it's do it. It's the off season. And three, I am fairly surprised that we didn't get a single listener tweet at us after EJ Manuel retired, asking for an emergent pod, That's you just right. reminded me about the picking EJ Manuel in, uh, with the first round pick in 2013. Not a single person requested an emergent pod on that. Not even for hilarity. Disappointing. Yes, but it's I know the you, off season people are sleeping. That's what I. That's what I mean. Sleeping I know. at the wheel. We'll uh, we'll we'll see what happens when. Uh, well, I don't know. Andy Lavitri just retired as well. Uh, so I'm now expecting uh, somebody to write a fan fiction on the alternate reality of Doug Whaley <laughs> hiring Anthony Lynn and picking Deshaun Watson. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get into it. Not another. an alternate reality that's discussed enough. A lot of people want to talk about Patrick Mahomes, but that probably was never going to happen. You're right. Unless, like you said, the number one question that we really don't know is what Bean who would, would have Brandon done? Bean have picked? Yes. If anybody. Right. I kind of think he would have picked Mahomes, but that's just me. I'm not sure if he would have picked a quarterback or not. I would be interested to know because the the other problem that or the other philosophical discussion there would be was the roster ready for and the cap as well and was the cap ready? I think it was actually. I think you had Tyrod Taylor, you had some veterans. By then, by the time you build the cap, you've got a quarterback entering his prime. They would have had Sammy for another year, right? You wouldn't have had to have traded him. I mean, it was a roster that you still had Richie Incognito and Eric Wood. Yeah, you had some veterans in place to where it wouldn't have been a horrible situation to throw a young quarterback in. Tyrod Taylor could have bridged the gap, and then yeah, the cap wouldn't have been in a good place. But then your quarterback would have been ascending, while you know you're figuring all that out and ideally reaching his prime or starting to enter his prime 
right now but, instead of Josh Allen still is not really in his prime right. or main we we don't know if he'll ever hit any sort of prime their hand of basically flipping their entire roster last year was forced by not hiring a general manager in January uh, before the draft and it's kind of funny to think about that all right let's move into some some other questions because we've spent a lot of time on that um at Bruce Exclusive writes in, How concerned should Bills fans be about edge rusher? No additions, save Eli Harold, and the 2020 cupboard is bare. Still minor moves to be made, future of that position? Your thoughts? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Defensive end is, quite frankly, their biggest need heading into the 2020 season. They have nothing. Um, I mean, Trent Murphy is still signed, but... Outside of him, it's it's there's there's nothing there. And I, I mean, Daryl Johnson is signed. I suppose he was a seventh round pick. Might not even make the team this year. But I mean, Jerry Hughes is a free agent. Shaq Lawson now officially will be a free agent. Um, Eddie Yarbrough has kind of plateaued, and Eli Harold is on a one year deal. So it's like an essential one year deal. So they have some things to figure out there. I would not be surprised, I don't know about you, if they were to re-sign Jerry Hughes, just because he has been so effective. Is he sometimes a raging lunatic? Absolutely. But that's uh, that's kind of him. And sometimes you like players with that edge. And, you know, it's, it's, he's, he's dialed it back at least a little bit on the field to where he's not constantly causing uh, negative plays for his team like he did, I don't know, maybe like two, three years ago. So I wouldn't be surprised there, even though he's 31 years old, I think, right now. But they they need some sort of long-term answer at that spot. And I'm curious your thoughts as well. Yeah, I think they need a long-term answer. But the reason why I wouldn't be overly concerned is because they do have one legitimate stud at the position in Jerry Hughes. They do. Who, yeah. He's still a very good pass rusher. And... They've got a lot of good players in the secondary, so you know they're a good, good team in terms of coverage. They're a good team in terms of scheme with what Sean McDermott does. They need long-term answers, but they still have a really good player who they could re-sign and still get a few good years out of mm-hmm. and draft somebody. Mm-hmm. Trent Murphy can't be, you know, can't really go downhill. I mean, I guess he could have a major injury, but all the nagging injuries made him made it hard for him to hit his stride last year so he could be a a positive boost and we've talked about it before but the pressure you get from the interior is arguably more important and so that's what McDermott argues Ed Oliver uh, should be a big boost there and so I think the pass rush won't be worse than it was a year ago unless you know a couple of guys get injured you've got a extremely motivated Shaq Lawson and Trent Murphy, who should be fresh and healthy entering the season. So are they going to be the best pass rushing team in football? No, probably not. But I think they've got a few decent guys, and pressure is more important than sack numbers. And so, you know, as long as they're creating some havoc in there, whether it's Ed Oliver or Jerry Hughes or Trent Murphy, you know, then I think, you know, there's they should get enough out of those guys it was a problem last year it's been a problem since Sean McDermott has been in Buffalo they just haven't had a chance to address it you're not going to be able to address it at this point in the offseason unless 
you trade for Jadavion Clowney, Unless which you is make kind a of a pipe dream. Ma- major move like that. That's a that's a first round pick going back to Houston, and I don't know if Bean is in the business of doing that. Yeah, I I would be surprised, and I don't even know that Houston's overly willing to to right. move on from him. Would but, you? I wouldn't. Right. I would I mean, try to work it out until I couldn't anymore with Clowney. He's he is a game breaker. To get guys like Clowney, you either have to give up a first round pick spend a boatload of money in free agency or draft them high in the draft. And the Bills haven't really had, uh, you know, a chance to do that yet. So uh, I think, yes, it's it's not um, a strength of this team, you know, by any means. But at the same time, they have a few players that are, you know, that should be serviceable. They have one player who should be really good again uh, in Jerry Hughes. And maybe it just puts more stress on the coverage unit, which is a decent unit. Two good safeties, um, you know, some depth at cornerback that, you know, they should have some guys that are, um, you know, worthwhile, um, you know, once the, the competition sorts itself out. So I don't envision defense being a massive problem for this team no, uh, they, in 2019. They do need more pressure from the left side of the defense. That is for sure because they got – I mean, for as good as Shaq Lawson was against the run and as at batting down passes, wasn't really great at getting after the passer. Just like that's been the story of his career, which is why he wasn't worth the 50-year option, which is why the Bills made the right move, at least in my opinion, for that. Trent Murphy needs to show more next year. They invested a lot of money in him, and if he doesn't, then they can get out from his contract. They can basically do what uh, to the defensive end position what they did to the tight end position this year. They could completely revamp this thing. And I don't know if it's necessarily wise because you would have to spend a lot more to do it. But, I mean, I would firmly put defensive end in the uh, in the bucket of potential first-round picks next year because of how much, uh, how much uh, the Bills' decision-makers have put an emphasis on adding talent along the defensive line uh, throughout the years. Uh, at least in Carolina, along with the fact that it's a it's a major need next year. So we'll we'll, we'll see how it plays out with uh, Jerry Hughes. Not like I said, I'm not ruling out him resigning, but uh, but yeah, something they need to figure out a plan for 2020. And maybe we we hear of a resigning at some point leading up to the regular season. I wouldn't even rule that out with Jerry Hughes. Uh, Shaq Loss is, is a different case. I know some fans will be like, well, he's younger. Resign him. Not as good. Not really. Not and it's, it's really, yeah, it's not close whatsoever. Um, good run defender doesn't get after the quarterback well enough to warrant substantial sums. And if you can potentially get a comp pick for Shaq Lawson because odds are he gets overpaid on the open market, I think I would, I would take that trade off. All right. Uh, one more question um, before we bid you adieu. Uh, let's see, where did it go? It was about the, the offensive line. Uh, here we go. Uh, at Hector Magana, 89. Who takes the first team reps at right tackle, Inseki or Ford? Also, is it Inseki versus Dawkins at left tackle and Ford versus Adrian Waddle at uh, right tackle? I think what you're going to see, and I actually thought one of their um, tryout signings showed a little bit of their hand into what they could do at uh, training camp and o- at OTAs. They signed, uh, but heading into that, they had 15 offensive linemen signed to the roster. 
They signed a 16th. He plays tackle. So that leads me to believe that they're going to have maybe to start Inseki being the first team right tackle, Dawkins being the first team left tackle. Then when they go through another iteration, they'll have Inseki over to the left, Ford at right tackle. So that way they have this kid, whatever his name is, McGinn, um, being able to take the third team reps. It just works out from a rotational standpoint. So I think you're going to see Inseki battling for both of those jobs. And Ford and Dawkins pretty much just tied to those two. Um, will we see Dawkins moved inside to guard at any point of of uh, the spring? I'm not sold on that. It would be smart, but they might want to give him every opportunity to to win that job. Or maybe they, they, they try to do it on those reps that Inseki goes over to left tackle. And I, I, I'm... I really want to see how that how they handle that rotation on Tuesday because that's uh it's going to be a uh, a hot topic as we kind of go forward how this whole offensive line is going to go and specifically at tackle I mean the guards are pretty pretty standard you know you know who potentially might start there but if Dawkins gets thrown into the equation that that creates a whole different set of circumstances. I think the combination that they go with will probably be the one, the single biggest thing to take away from next week when they have an open practice. But I think my my question is, I know they say everything factors into the evaluation and all that, but the weird thing is, you know, how how does Deion Dawkins or Ty Seke get a leg up in the spring? Sure, you know, right. at, at offensive line, right? Without pads on, what are we, you know, what are you even evaluating at that point? I mean, it's hard to know what exactly you're looking at. So I think, you know, a lot of it will come down to the playbook and and everything else in terms of who gets an edge. But, you know, I asked Sean McDermott the question at the end of the draft, I think it was, about how you sort through it all, how you Mm -hmm. decide, you know, when do you decide, all right, now we have to move Deion Dawkins to guard. Or now we have to move Cody Ford into guard. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you even go about doing that? How how do you know that you've given him enough reps to compete for the, the right spot? How do you know even where to put, you know, Spencer Long or, you know, Quentin Spain or John Feliciano? Like, which side is better? There's going to be so much movement. There, it's that's why you almost need to move them around sooner rather than later so that guys are prepared. The only way having an offensive line as deep as the one they have is, is if those guys can all kind of move around and you don't really find that out and find the right combination unless you're really shuffling it up. And the drawback of doing that is that by shuffling it up so often you're missing out on, you know, one guy getting all the reps at the position that he might be playing or Mm -hmm. getting the reps with the right guy. And so it's a complicated dance, but it's a better spot to be in than just having to put Vlad Dukas in there because you have to. (laughs) So it's a, it's a decent problem to have, but still somewhat tricky. Yes, it is. And uh, the offensive line, and I know it's, one of the toughest things to track during a preseason game because the angle isn't the best. You can't really see who is doing what on every single play, at least the, the TV broadcast. But uh, when when you see the depth chart by 
the practices by the games and and who's where that's I, I can't wait to see it. I, I mean, they have to have a pretty distinct plan here to figure all of this out and who is best at right and left guard, who can potentially be a backup center, because guess what? Russell Bodine might not make the team. So you're going to have to get reps to Spencer Long or someone else at center as well, just to get them prepped and ready to go in the event if they are the swing interior guy, or let's say Spencer Long wins the right guard job. And if, you know, Morse goes down with an injury, Long has to flip over to center, he's got to be prepared to do so. So there, it's just... And somebody's got to be prepared to be a a right guard. Right. Whether it's Quentin Spain, John Feliciano, or Wyatt Teller, one of those guys has to... And Wyatt Teller was only a left guard last year. So, you know, finding that combination with limited reps in the spring, basically, I I don't want to say you you have no reps in the spring, but... Kind of do. Yeah. I mean, you know, that you're not, you know, really. You line up there. You line up. You learn the take, playbook. You learn the steps yeah. and get used to the movement, but you're not taking contact. And so it's really a tricky, you know, tricky way to, to figure it all out. That's why training camp's going to be super important. And, you know, the fact that they've got joint practices that they'll be able to evaluate these guys almost like a an extra preseason game type of setting. Um all that should be good, but I also think at some point, second or third week, you got to kind of settle on a starting five, mm-hmm. and you know let those guys gel together, and then take the backups and, like you said, kind of move them around. Uh, if Spencer Long doesn't win a starting job, get him some reps at center. Mm-hmm. If even if he does win a starting job, you probably want him running with your your second or third team offensive line at center just to have the reps and. Same goes for the other guys. Wyatt Teller doesn't win a starting job. Start working him at right. Heck, give him some third team reps at center. You know, figure out who your options can be uh, and where they can play before you, you know, are forced into the situation right. and you have a guy that's ill prepared. You don't have to worry about getting Jeremiah Searles his reps at center. It's he's not going to make the team. Well, he okay. He's got a very low percentage chance of making the team, but. Yeah, so you don't have to be overly concerned with, well, well we missed out on giving uh, Blake McGinn his right tackle reps or Jeremiah Searles his center reps or, heck, Ike Butker his guard reps. That's one of the third-team offensive guards right now. Um, Ike Butker would be, and if they hadn't loaded up so much, would be an interesting uh, candidate. And perhaps still would be because most of these guys they can cut if they need to, but... He would need to take a pretty substantial jump, but a guy that has at least been around. Anytime a guy hangs around into a second off season, there's something that they see there. Yeah, uh, but what gives me he- hesitation about him though was their outright refusal to put him in the game until like the the bitter end of the season. That that leads me to believe that uh, maybe they don't fully trust him at at this point, and he's going to have to do a lot to one-up the veterans that have all that experience. So I'm, I'm not optimistic about him. Yeah, that's where any of these guys, and that's something that I think we talked about a lot at the end of last year, and I wrote about it, was I'm not sure every guy in that room grasped the opportunity that they had. You know, the the fact that the roster was so barren mm-hmm. made it so a guy like Keith Ford got a good chunk of carries. He's not even on the team anymore. Yeah, he's cut. And might not be in the league. You know what I mean? And and I think 
the opportunity that was presented to some of these guys, there were guys that took advantage. Levi Wallace and Robert Foster, probably chief among them. But there were a lot of guys that, um, you know, maybe, I don't want to say took it for granted. Some guys just weren't talented enough to take advantage of it. But, you know, talking to a guy like Keith Ford, he understood. He was like, you know, this isn't normal. Uh, for <laughs> A lot of guys, not to say he didn't earn it, because, you know, he was by all accounts one of the hardest workers in practice, kept his nose clean and just put his head down and worked. There are a lot of guys around the NFL that do that that never sniff the 53, let alone the 46. And so to me, you know, it it speaks to what they've done this offseason that a guy like Ike Butker, who you maybe in the past would have talked about and said maybe he can steal a spot somewhere. It's going to be really hard for him to steal a spot. Same goes for all these receivers who we've talked about. They're going to have to really go out and and take it. It's you know, there's not just roster spots and snaps to go around like there used to be. And in the end, they might only keep five wide receivers. Wouldn't be shocked right. by that. Wouldn't be shocked at all. All right. Well, uh, we'll get to see how all of this kind of lines up, at least to start things, uh, when OTAs get going uh, on Tuesday of next week. Um, we'll probably record a podcast with our thoughts on it. Maybe that Tuesday, more likely that Wednesday, just to split up the week a little bit and uh, and, and get you all, all of our, our takes about what we saw and, and all of that good stuff. So uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Bills Beat Podcast. For Matthew Fairburn, my name is Joe Biscaglia. We will talk to you after the first session of OTAs next week. See you then.